0: Hi, guys. Welcome back to the Art of Travel podcast. This week's music is brought to you by today's guest, Eddie Chacon. Eddie Chacon is a man of many talents. He's a musician, photographer, and contributing editor of Oath Magazine based in Los Angeles. He's most famous for his 90s single, Would I Lie to You, while he was in the band Charles and Eddie. After a decade off from producing his own music, he recently returned to the studio to produce an album with John Carroll Kirby called Pleasure, Joy, and Happiness. Here's Eddie on the line. I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining me today on the Art of Travel podcast, and I also wanted to congratulate you on releasing your new album, Pleasure, Joy, and Happiness. I think the title itself is what we need right now. So tell me a little bit about your album.
1: Well, it was recorded and conceived actually before the pandemic. Even before the pandemic, I think I personally just felt like social media and the pace of the world felt super chaotic to me. And I just felt like I wanted to create something kind something that was on the opposite end of the spectrum from what I was felt like I was being bombarded with. So I wanted to create something that was a break from the chaos and something that people could actually recharge their batteries to.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. And how did you come about producing this album?
1: I hadn't been making music for over 10 years. And I think the hardest part when you're an artist is hooking up with the right record producer to help get the vision that's in your head out into the world um, sonically. And so I just wasn't having much luck in that area for many years in the last years that I was attempting to do music. So I was writing a lot of songs privately, and I had a lot of ideas of what I thought would be a great record, but just couldn't find the right person. And then skip to 10 years later and 10 years of not doing music, And I suddenly had the opportunity to meet John Carroll Kirby, who was coming off of having produced the last two Solange records. And he had worked with um, Con and Moccasin. And he's a good friend of Mac DeMarco. And he just makes a very, I call it quiet on the inside, meditative type of instrumental music himself. But he's also a tremendous producer. And a mutual friend of ours had the idea that somehow the two of us would hit it off. And we had coffee, and we really did. It was it was pretty magical right from the get-go. Uh, a 20-minute coffee turned into a three-hour uh, meeting talking about music and ideas and concepts. and And that turned into the earlier sessions of starting to record what would become pleasure, joy, and happiness.
0: That's incredible. So you guys sort of just... Saw eye to eye in the vision of the type of music you felt was missing,
1: yeah, and I think going into it, I was aware and already so impressed by what John was doing because he was already doing something that I thought was so great as far as what I thought would be wonderful for people to to have available to him something that was quiet and peaceful and and just kind of the opposite of the chaotic atmosphere of of the you know current state of things. And so he was already moving in that direction. So I suppose, if anything, I just went into the coffee meeting feeling very nervous and apprehensive that, yes, there's no doubt that he's great and in a great place in his career. I'm not so sure that he's going to want to work with a 57-year-old guy who last really made an impression in the early 90s. (laughs) So I felt pretty nervous about that but he wanted to work together, and I I thought it was very fortunate for me. It was a really fortunate chance meeting.
0: And this is one thing that I found so interesting about your story, is that you've had two breaks in your music career, and does that happen very often, would you say, throughout your years as a musician? How how often do these types of opportunities arise?
1: Having come from uh, pretty humble beginnings, I didn't expect to get a break at all. It was a it was a sort of a wild dream of mine to be able to work as an artist and work in the music business and I probably would have been thrilled to have achieved much less than I was fortunate enough to have happen to me. I think it's such a tall order to try to make a living in the arts or or be an artist for a living and to answer your question, I just feel unbelievably lucky. I've had a lot I've had the stars line up for me. Many, many times from when I first arrived in L.A. and and a chance meeting that I had with a woman who was the vice president of CBS who would go on to mentor me for 18 years and sign me to every company that she worked for as a songwriter. She really worked to mentor me and develop me as a songwriter. And so I was exposed to just some of the greatest teachers in the world, people that we all idolize and look up to uh, in the world of music I don't know. I just had opportunity, one opportunity yeah. leading to another. And it was just a series of times in my music career where the stars seemed to line up.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up and how you got into music?
1: I grew up in Hayward, California, which is a suburb of Oakland, um, just across the bay from San Francisco. I was obsessed with music from the time I was a child. I, I think me and my two older brothers, I'm the youngest of three. All three of us played in a marching band when we were young, so we all played instruments. I mean, very young, from the time we were small boys. Music was just the be all everything in our household. You know, my mom was obsessed with Rod Stewart. My brother was obsessed with Led Zeppelin, Robin Trower, Rick Derringer, and Todd Rundgren. My other brother was obsessed with Al Green, Marvin Gaye, Sam Cooke, Otis Redding. So I just had like this complete, I don't know how to put it, like a mishmash of different genres blaring through my bedroom walls as a kid. (laughs) I envisioned myself wanting to be in music for as long as I could possibly remember. I can't remember having ever wanted to do anything else.
0: When did you pick up your first instrument?
1: I started playing the guitar when I was 12, and uh, my mom and dad got me a teacher at a really cute little music shop Um, like a little family-owned music shop in a strip mall in Hayward, California. And I remember the lessons were $8. They would take me like every Tuesday or something. And it was so sweet. I remember the first song I learned was House of the Rising Sun.
0: I knew it was going to be in that genre, though. I feel like when you pick up an instrument when you're 12, you're always always learning um, something from like the Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd generation of music.
1: (laughs) Totally. Yeah, so... I started when I was twelve, but I have to say, I was just I started so passionately and so seriously. I think my mom and dad had bought my older brother's instruments that wound up collecting dust in the corner, so that by the time I told them that I wanted an instrument, they said, "Well, get a paper route and you know save up if you can save up I think twenty five dollars, we'll chip in the extra ten and get you this thirty five dollar electric guitar that I really wanted at the music shop down the street." And I did. I got a paper route, and I, I I did that until I saved up my $25. I think I must have been like 10 years old, riding my bike, delivering papers. And they kicked in the rest, and that was, that was how it all began.
0: That's wonderful. And were you in high school bands?
1: I never played in high school band. I've always admittedly been a bit feral as a musician. I never learned to read music. I didn't have the discipline for it, and I just wanted to be an improvisational musician who I've always been kind of a loner from the time I was a kid. So I wasn't very good at things where you had to belong or join things. Mm. So band was never going to work for me. I was more the kid that the the loner kid that just sat in his bedroom from three o'clock when I got home from school until I went to bed every night and and just obsessively played guitar and tried to mimic the guitar solos of all the great guitar heroes from the 70s.
0: Oh man, so you're
1: completely self-taught. Completely self-taught, um, except to say that I had a lot of tremendous mentors, especially once I moved to L.A. And I somehow, you know, fell under the tutelage of CBS, and there was just this incredible staff of music executives there. <laughs> I think they must have felt sorry for me. I mean, I was new in town. I was 20 years old, and CBS just became my home. I was literally there every day, all day, being taken out to breakfast, lunch, dinner, and then going to all the parties at night and being introduced to every celebrity and behind-the-scenes songwriter that I'd ever could have imagined. It was an incredible world that I somehow fell into right when I moved to L.A.
0: What was your first starstruck moment?
1: Well, in the offices of CBS, I met Ron Miller, your average... Person wouldn't know who that is, but he wrote many of those great legendary Stevie Wonder songs like Yesterday, Yester Me, Yester You, Down to Earth. He's just one of the great legendary Motown songwriters. I met him. God, I met um, Al Green, who was probably, you know, I think I spent a great many years of my life literally trying to mimic Al Green. <laughs>
0: I love um, Al Green.
1: <laughs> so there was a point at which Al Green recorded a song off the first Charles and Eddie record and a friend of mine was producing the record and and said, if you want to come and meet Al, come with me to this show tonight in New Jersey and I'll take you backstage and you'll meet him. And, and I got to go backstage and meet Al Green after he had recorded one of a song from our record.
0: That's incredible.
1: Yeah. yeah, I'll never forget it to this day because he did the funniest thing I ever I never would have imagined someone of that caliber doing. He gave me his business card. <laughs> and, you know, I thought that was really funny. And I actually still have that business card. I would frame
0: that. Did it inspire you to start creating your own business cards? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I wonder if he still carries business cards. <laughs>
0: When you moved to L.A., were you there to pursue a career in music?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, by the time I was, I think, 12 years old, I had started my first garage band with um, Cliff Burton, who went on to play in Metallica, and Mike Borden, who went on to be the drummer in Faith No More. Um, We were childhood friends. And so by the time I moved to L.A. when I was 20, I had already played in a series of pretty popular, like, locally popular rock bands that would open for bigger bands when they came to town by the time I came to LA yeah Yeah. I didn't really know that there was actually an industry behind the music business that just consisted of songwriters I thought I just wanted to be a rock star yeah and then when I accidentally connected with CBS songs that wasn't the record leg of cbs it was the songwriting publishing side of cbs music so that was the world that i first got introduced to when i came to la
0: yeah is
1: this world of songwriters and i didn't know that on all these great legendary records that we all love many of the songs are not written by the artists so that was like a whole new world that i fell into that I didn't even know exists, so I couldn't have aspired towards it because I didn't know it existed. Yeah,
0: that's fascinating. What was your first big break?
1: The first big break was um, shortly after signing with CBS Songs as a young songwriter when I was 20-ish. Something happened in the music business where CBS somehow, a leg of CBS called ATV Music had a portion ownership of the Beatles catalog and at that time there was a really cool band I think called Timex Social Club that was having a number one hit with the song Lean on Me and so the president of CBS thought if he could get me to demo Beatles songs in a contemporary kind of way Mm -hmm. he thought maybe he could have a big hit with a Beatles song like get somebody really cool and current record Beatles a Beatles song and maybe have a big hit like lean on me and so I did I recorded love is all you need getting better and one other that I can't remember but yeah he he loved what I did and he took it to the president of Columbia Records a guy named Mickey Eisner and played it for him and the president of CBS said I love it exactly as it is who's this And that's when he called me up and said, I got you a record deal at Columbia Records. I hope you don't
0: mind. (laughs) That's incredible.
1: Yeah, it was just completely out of the blue.
0: Did you perform under your name, Eddie, for some time? When did you start Charles and Eddie?
1: Yeah, this was many years before Charles and Eddie because, boy, that turned out to be such a lesson um, in the music business or just a big part of my journey. I kind of thought like when I was a kid, you know, if you got a record deal, you became a rock star. I didn't know that most records fail and that very few people become rock stars. (laughs) So my first few records completely flopped and never saw the light of day, including that one I was just telling you about, the Columbia record. Mm. So it was actually seven years later. Then I met Charles on a New York City subway train in New York. We were both at that time signed to, I call it like an entry-level record deal to Capitol Records. It's kind of like a first right of refusal deal, meaning that the record company signs you, but they sign you under the agreement that if they don't like what you do, they can just let you go and not continue forward. So Charles and I were both signed to those kind of deals, and we weren't together. We were just two individuals that were signed separately But we met each other on a subway train, not knowing that we were signed to the same guy and the same record label. And we really gravitated towards each other immediately over music and record collecting. So that's how Charles and Eddie came to be, is we kind of met on our own.
0: That's pretty surreal, that law of attraction happening on a subway train.
1: It really was. It was kind of a one in a billion, really. And then I think initially... When Charles and I started working together, I don't think either one of us thought that it was going to be Charles and Eddie. I think that we thought we were helping each other out with our solo records. But there was actually a magical moment in a recording studio in Chelsea that I'll never forget, where if I was helping Charles and he was out to lunch or something, I would put down what I call a guide vocal so that he could come and listen to it in his left ear in the left side of his headphones, and then sing along, hearing himself in the right ear of his headphones. And then we would just keep his vocal and erase my vocal. So that's what we used to do for each other when we'd write together, um, when we're learning the song. And then there was a magical moment where we were both in the control room, and both of our voices were up. And we were kind of like, not a perfect match. It was kind of wrong. Like, we were kind of going <laughs> in and out, like, intertwining our voices with each other. And it literally gave me, Charles, and the engineer chills. Like, it gave you goosebumps. It was just, like, unmistakably cool. Yeah. And we all looked at each other, and we were like, wow, oh, this is insane. This is so cool. We got to play this for Josh, um, Josh Deutsch, who, would, who was our A&R person, like, our boss that had signed us both. And once Josh heard that, there was really no going back. There was there was no more solo records. It was just Charles and Eddie. <laughs> I
0: love that. And so it was through this trial and experimentation that you form your duo.
1: Totally accidental. The name as well, because on the tapes that would go up on the shelf, there wasn't a band name because it wasn't a band. So we would just call it Charles and Eddie. <laughs>
0: I love that. (laughs) And what did you guys do from there? Did you start touring? Did you, how many albums did you produce together?
1: We made two records together. And I suppose over like the next six weeks that followed that kind of magical moment and realization that I was just talking about, we wrote what would become Duophonic, which was the big record. We made that record over about a three-month period in New York. It came out in August of 1992, The single, Would I Lie to You? It's funny. Initially, the song didn't really do that well, I think. I remembered the record company coming back to us and our manager and saying, you know, we're giving it a go, but we're not getting a lot of response and we're not really sure what to do. And it was our manager at the time that just pounded the record company to please give it another chance, like give it another few weeks of PR and pushing it to radio stations. And it was in that time that from what I understand, Elton John fell madly in love with it, and it caught his ear, and he called the big radio station in London and said, you guys should really be spinning this record, that he really believed in it. And it was from that point that the record really exploded, first in the UK, it became number one in the UK, and then it went on to become number one all over the world.
0: That's incredible. What happened when you found out Elton John called the radio stations and you hit number 1 in the UK was it almost like did it accelerate you into the public eye or was it more of like a slow adaptation into into the mainstream
1: No I think it was like a unbelievable like rocket ship like being shot out of be, being shot into the air in a rocket ship it was incredible because There were just so many aspects to it that just being kind of an amateur or just being green, I didn't know about the music business. I didn't know that although they signed many acts, there's a small handful that are considered world priorities. And after that happened, our group became like a real priority for Capitol Records. And at that point, I could really feel the weight of the record company behind us. We were just... We were just making appearances everywhere, all over the world, zigzagging the globe, nonstop for what would become the next five years.
0: Wow. Um, Just on this one album.
1: Um, It was that record and then a follow-up that was called Chocolate Milk.
0: And what was that like traveling around the world?
1: It was surreal. It was all first-class travel. And Charles and I were both came from really humble backgrounds. And thank God we had each other. We were always together, and we were always with our musical director, who was my best friend, yeah. uh, Nate Paul Gordon. And so the three of us, and we would pick up other musicians uh, when we did big concerts, or when we toured, we had a full-on band from a, from the U.S. that we would use. But we had each other, which was amazing, because it was super exhausting, and there were definitely like high highs, but also low lows. I mean, in some ways, even though I was 27 years old, I was still like... Maturity-wise, just kind of a big kid, you know? Yeah. Um, It sounds uh, like such high-class problems. We were quite lonely, actually. It's quite lonely and it's quite isolated feeling at the same time that it's fantastical and kind of insane. You know, you're just – yeah, I can remember going to, like, bars and restaurants and just having, like, an immense commotion everywhere you went. So, yeah, it was – Hard to describe, and I can hardly believe that any of that happened.
0: <laughs> yeah was it was it like being in the film Almost Famous?
1: Exactly, I think that movie conveys it so well. Yeah, going yeah. from um,
0: from moderate obscurity to just rock star level.
1: Yeah, especially when you're playing shows, and you know, we did a headlining tour, and then we did some festivals where you're just playing in front of massive audiences. It feels really unreal, especially when you're playing festivals the audience is very far away from you, yeah. so you almost somewhat feel like you're acting, because you can't feel so much the energy of the audience, because they seem so far away. The first tier of, of people that are behind the barrier, which has like 10 or 14 feet of security yeah. in front of you, so it's really strange. I can really understand why really big bands like to play clubs sometimes just to get back that feeling that you once had when you were starting out.
0: Yeah, the intimacy and energy of being close to your to your fans. Yeah.
1: yeah, exactly.
0: Okay, so just for context, Almost Famous was one of my favorite movies. My dream was to sort of live that lifestyle as a teenager. I was obsessed with going to music festivals when I was younger, and is it into. is it really surreal, like, looking back at those memories? Like, does it feel like it just happened in a blink of an eye?
1: Yeah, it really does, especially now that I'm 57, because I used to play in a new wave band called The Toys in the late 70s. And at that time, I was 15 and a half. And we used to play a lot of shows opening for fairly big bands. And I remember the promoter who was a very famous promoter in the Northern California, said, oh, you're the youngest guy since Neil Sean of Journey to be like on this circuit playing these shows like this. So I kind of always grew up just being like the young kid. In, yeah. And in that way, kind of like the young journalist and almost famous. Yeah. I was always just like blown away that I even got to be there. You know, I felt like someone was going to tap me on the shoulder any minute and say, kid, we found you out. You're out of here. You know. <laughs> it had that kind of feeling to it. So to be 57 now and all these years have gone by and I don't know now I mean I'm kind of an elder, you know. Yeah. It's it's really surreal and yeah, I can't I can't believe that it all happened. I really do pinch myself every day and honestly I I'm just shocked that it went the way it did. There were so many talented kids where I came from. And I don't think I was the most talented. I might have been the most persistent, (laughs) but I wasn't the most talented. (laughs) I think it's surreal what's happening now, too, because I always told my wife over the last 10 years that I wanted to make a record that I could look myself in the mirror and like what I see, that I could feel like I went out the way I wanted to go out. I wanted to make something for myself that was very beautiful and that captured Me at age 57, and I was as curious as anybody would be about where my talent had arrived after having done it so long. Yeah. Uh, And after having not done it for 10 years, I thought, what do I have to say? And do I have anything to say? And so I didn't really expect that pleasure, joy, and happiness. I didn't have any sense of entitlement. I didn't feel that the universe owed me anything. Um, I just wanted to do something beautiful and be able to say to myself, you did something really beautiful at the end of your music career. So to me, it's super surreal that it's gotten the kind of attention that it's gotten and that people are really enjoying it. Maybe one of the biggest thrills of my life, in all honesty.
0: And so what is the biggest difference between the album that you released last year versus the one that you released when you were 27? Did you have more commercial pressure when you were performing as a musician full-time to, versus what
1: you created? I think when I was 27 and I was doing Charles and Eddie, I still was so deeply entrenched in my idols, the people that I wanted to be or be like, you know, those great. And for me, it was those great 70s soul singers. So Charles and Eddie was really a retro act. The records are really retro 70s soul records as a fifty seven year old man can 't really honestly say I have any idols. I just wanted to create something new and fresh and contemporary that honestly conveyed my inner world and told my story so pleasure joy had the big difference is that pleasure joy and happiness is just a contemporary record, and Charles and Eddie were very much retro 70s soul records there's
0: something that you said to me that really struck out you you mentioned that. Your music had to go out of style to go back into style.
1: Yeah, I think that. I think that we all want to be noticed, and it's natural that we all want to be validated. But I don't think it ever really occurred to me that as I was aging that there would be a certain amount of validation and respect that would just come from being a survivor, from just being somebody that people look at and say, this guy's just been around so long. He's been doing this for so many years and he's still doing it. <laughs> and I'm quite shocked by that myself, to be honest.
0: And what did you do after Charles and Eddie?
1: Well, I was very lucky because um, I didn't know that we had parted as an act. We just merely were exhausted and homesick and we wanted to go home. And I lived in um, LA and Charles lived in Philadelphia. And, We just went home, and what would start out as a hiatus turned out to be many years. Mm. (laughs) Um, There was no game plan to it. But in that time, I had met someone who would go on to be really one of my greatest friends in the world. And he was the owner of a record company in Scandinavia that would go on to become – it would be purchased by EMI Records and become EMI Records. And so he had a lot of the biggest Scandinavian artists of the time um, in the mid-'90s signed to his record label and he was a real Charles and Eddie fan and he just started flying me to Copenhagen constantly and flying me all over the world to make um to produce and write records for these artists that he had on his record label and so after Charles and Eddie his name's Paul Brune um Paul and I just made a whole series of records that were super successful in those areas so it was great because i think had i not been getting that validation of seeing those it it was a lot of hit records i think we made seven number one hits oh wow um, for other people yeah and i think had it not been for that time it might have been a sad time because i mean what a tremendous contrast to be traveling the world and then all of a sudden you're back home and it just goes from like you know from 100 miles an hour to zero but that relationship with paul really it really insulated me from that because I was getting so much validation and it was as a producer and a songwriter. And those were areas that, um, like I was telling you earlier, that I knew a lot about because it was kind of where I received my a lot of mentoring from CBS yeah. when I first arrived in L.A. So it was like, wow, I had that success as a singer and now I get to come full circle and go back to where they had kind of helped me out and have success in this area as a songwriter.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. And that's so interesting because at this point, you've lived in Los Angeles, New York, and Copenhagen. All of these cities have super strong creative synergies. What would you say most inspired you about each place?
1: You know, LA's starting to get this quality, but it's never going to have it to the degree that London, Copenhagen, and New York, and Berlin have it. But I love the... I love the energy of being on the street with everybody um, the most. In that way, it's funny that I settled in L.A. because I really, I really love that quality that New York, um, Berlin, London, and, and um, Copenhagen have. That You just go out your door and hit the street, and you're just with everybody. And yeah. I love that energy. I love people. Yeah, I never, get, I never get tired of that. It really feeds me and inspires me. Uh, and I love to talk to people. I love to talk to people that I don't know. Yeah, L.A. is a bit more like you're kind of in your – you have to plan to go out in L.A. You know, <laughs> yes. it doesn't happen. <laughs> and that's hard to get used to. Settled in L.A. I think, honestly, I settled in L.A. because my parents live here and I, I wanted to be here for them and be a good son. But had it not been for my parents being here, I think that I probably – and I did settle in you – New know, I lived in New York for five years and lived in London on and off for – or four years, lived in Berlin a year. And then I worked in Copenhagen for 20 years where I was just flying back and forth constantly.
0: I mean, LA is not a bad place to settle down. What have you noticed are the biggest shifts in the music industry from the 90s to now?
1: Well, this is probably going to surprise a lot of musicians, um, because I hear a lot of musicians say, oh, it used to be this kind of Monopoly that the major labels had over artists. And unless you had the blessing of these three or four major labels, Mm -hmm. Universal, Polygram, Island, Capital, um, you just couldn't exist. You were relegated to obscurity. But I kind of disagree with that because what I observe is that you used to have three or four companies that decided whether you got to exist, and now you just have one um, or two. You have Apple and Spotify. And if they don't acknowledge you, you don't exist. And so there's still major labels. They're just not called the same thing. They just have new names. Yeah. So I think there's actually a smaller. There used to be a whole bunch of major labels. Now yeah. there's really just two.
0: <laughs> Do you feel like there's less barriers to entry
1: or more? It's easier to enter now and that you can make an absolutely gorgeous record on your laptop And you can put it on Bandcamp and Spotify on your own and use CD Baby, or you can get your music out there. But that doesn't mean anybody's going to hear it. It is validating to not just be hoarding your music like I used to. I used to make, I've made countless records that no one will ever hear because in my world at the time, they're just if you couldn't get it signed to a major label, nobody ever heard it. Yeah.
0: Do you think you'll release them now, now that you sort of have more authorship with these streaming platforms?
1: I was just talking about that to my label owner, Jack Sills, in the last few weeks, because there are some pretty awesome rarities. Um, A couple things I did with the Dust Brothers, a couple things I did with Daddy-O from Stetsasonic, some pretty cool collaborations, um, maybe like some, um, Charles and Eddie outtakes where we're just kind of singing live at the record plant or live at electric lady recording studios in New York. Yeah, There's some pretty cool rarities and obscure things that we were talking could make an interesting, um, an interesting piece of work.
0: So I know that you've also dabbled in a lot of different creative mediums while still producing and writing music. When did you foray into photography?
1: The photography thing um, came about, I was pretty discouraged. When I quit doing music um, many years ago, it wasn't a joyful thing. It was very sad. I just felt like nobody was listening and that my time was over, like my time was up. And I have a very dear friend that I've known for over 30 years who's like a brother to me. And at that time, he sent me a really professional camera with a sticky note on it that said, I think you'd be good at this. And I think it was just his gentle way of nudging me into just express yourself in a different way. Use what you have. It's applicable in a different area of the arts and just do something else. And so getting that camera from him, and I really respect him, I just kind of, I didn't even flinch. I just immediately started shooting, um, booking models and, and buying tons of coffee table books. To soak up as much as I possibly could um, to educate myself and and um, try to find a voice of my own. It was kind of it was quite liberating because it felt I went from getting doors slammed in my face in the music business and being very over to all of a sudden being new again.
0: That must have been exhilarating. And do you find that your visual medium somehow informs your musical one, or vice versa?
1: I'm a type of person that just notices everything, all the time. It's a curse. (laughs) It's like I'm being bombarded by a hurricane 24-7. And so, yeah, I think that they they have always informed each other all the time.
0: I mean, I I can really tell just based on the visuals of your album, it's just so lovely and thought out. And it feels like there's an aesthetic in your sound. How are you able to convey those sort of expressions and themes as someone who doesn't make music.
1: (laughs) I definitely feel when I'm making a record and I have always felt this way since I was a kid. Oftentimes when, when your friends suggest you should do this song or you should do that song or your record company, A&R Boss will tell you, you should throw this on the record. But I have always felt that records needed more than just for a song to be good. I feel that when you're making a record, you're painting a portrait. So what does a portrait have? This is just me. It has two eyes. It has one mouth. It has a nose, two ears, the hair, the jawline, the chin, everything. So a song could be so unbelievably amazing, but if you already have two eyes and it's an eye, you don't need it. Yeah. (laughs) I feel that when I'm making a record, I'm just painting a portrait. So I'm looking – it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. I'm I'm not only looking for a great song, but I'm looking for a song that fills in this part of the picture –
0: And you know what, too, one thing that I read in one of your interviews is that your intention for this album is for it to be transportive. And I would love for you to talk to me more about how you create music that's transportive of a certain moment or feeling or time and place.
1: I really wanted this record to not be literal. Um, Not to say that there aren't a couple songs on the record, My Mind Is Out of Its Mind, where... Where the lyrics really do have a, a quite a literal narrative, but oftentimes on this record, I wanted it, the lyrics to be a bit obscure, like a bit vague, like say things that could be applied in many ways. I wasn't looking so much for a narrative as much as I was looking for that it would evoke a feeling. Yeah. Um, so some of the songs on this record, like "Outside," the one that Laraji remixed. Mm -hmm. That was a song where John had this absolutely beautiful track and I just picked up the microphone and we just hit record and I just wanted to make sounds that felt right. And that's what came out. So that was really very, there's a few things on the record that are stream of consciousness. I had no clue what I was going to say or do before I did it. And I love doing that.
0: So I wanted to talk to you about, Sissy, (laughs) my love. Yeah, Sissy, your love and, and who I'm so thankful I met because otherwise we would have never met. So your wife, Sissy is a stylist and recently she directed your latest music video. Were you guys always creative collaborators in your, in your partnership?
1: We have always been, and I always wanted it to be. I always felt that when I met Sissy, she was a third grade school teacher. What an incredible thing to be a third grade school teacher. But in addition to being that, I just felt like she brought so much to the table that was untapped uh, creatively. So in all honesty, you know, I really dragged her into some of this creative stuff, kicking and screaming. Um, She always felt like she didn't belong there and that I was pushing her into an area that, um, you know, she didn't want to feel like she didn't belong. But I just disagreed with her incredibly and thought that she had some incredible ideas and she has a very, I don't know, she's always been extremely opinionated about how she saw things and wasn't afraid to share it with me. And I just found incredible value in that. She's just been an amazing sounding board for me. So, yeah, I mean, much to my delight, the answer to your question is yes. I like to collaborate with her as much as I can, Um, and I pretty much do bounce everything I do off of her. I love her feedback.
0: And you guys make such an incredible partnership. I mean, the videos and images that you guys create together is really, really evocative. Thank you.
1: Well, I think she has a very potent voice. It's so her. Yeah. What she does. I just really value it and uh, there's no way that I could do something or aspire to do something visually and not pull her into it because she just makes it better.
0: <laughs> I love that. It's um a great aspiration as I navigate the the waters of dating at the moment. <laughs> I will never forget your dating advice. <laughs> <laughs> From (laughs) from when we were neighbors at the Villa Carlota. You were just speaking to me and Ashley and you were just talking about all of the wonderful things you guys have created together. And I think it was more aspirational and just the amount of time you guys have spent together, like not only in partnership, but through all your projects. I think it's really inspiring.
1: I think my main thing that I always tell people is to just be patient because I didn't meet Sissy until I was 44
0: Oh, man, I didn't know that, actually. Were you not ready before that?
1: I wanted to find great love, and I knew the value of a great relationship because my parents had one, and I wanted that. I was that person that all my friends would say, you're looking for something that doesn't exist. You just really need to, you know, settle down. And I just wasn't going to have that. I just truly believed that Sissy was out there and that if I couldn't find her, I'd rather be alone.
0: (laughs) Oh, (laughs) <laughs> so this is exactly what you told us at Villa Carlota. And we're like, okay, uh, we'll wait. <laughs> True love yeah, is worth I'm, waiting for.
1: Patience is everything.
0: So I'm curious to learn, what projects are you currently working on?
1: God, we just had the most momentous thing um, happen in our life, especially for me. Um, when I had the success of Charles and Eddie, I bought a house in Las Feliz. I was 30 years old. And anybody knows, anybody that knows me has been to the countless parties there, and we've all shared countless memories there. And it's just kind of become this house steeped into the memory of everyone that knows me, um, family and friends. And after 27 years, I just decided to sell the house and decided I wanted a completely I wanted to live in a completely opposite way than the way we were living. It was a house, and I didn't want to live in a house anymore. I felt like houses require so much maintenance and love, and it's like the symbiotic relationship you have with your house. You put this incredible energy into it, and in turn the house becomes this incredible life force for you. But I think as I got older, I just felt like I wanted a more chill lifestyle, and I wanted to literally do music or photography – And not be distracted by the needs of the house. So, we moved from the house and bought a condo downtown. And it's really beautiful. It has like beautiful views and walls of glass. And it has like really nice amenities where we can just chill and have friends over and swim or whatever. I think it was the time for it. And I also had this feeling it was a strange occurrence. It occurred to me about a year ago. I thought, are you really going to be one of those people that bought a house when he was 30 and then just lived in it until he died?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it oh. seems like adventure in any way is just like something that you you want to switch things up, right? I mean, otherwise yeah. you're not iterating.
1: Oh. Yeah, I somehow felt that that somehow doesn't jive with how I see myself. I'm more of an adventure type of person. I want to turn the whole thing on its ear and start over again. I love to do that.
0: That's really great. I mean, the fact that that you still have that thirst for adventure is incredible. Did creating the album sort of revitalize some of that?
1: I really think it did. I think, honestly, I was telling Sissy a few months ago, I think the house had a lot of sentimentality tied to it and it was the result of the partnership I shared with Charles and so many people that mentored me and to walk up those stairs and walk into that house was it was quite a source of pride having come from where I came from and I remember when I first moved to LA I would go to Greenblatt's the deli and I'd get a pastrami sandwich and I'd drive up into the hills up in Mulholland And I would park in front of those Spanish houses in the hills. And I was just like a young 20-year-old dreamer. And I'd park my car in front there. And I just think, man, one day I want to have a house like this. (laughs) So to have that house was just, it was just an incredible thing. The sentimental part was that it was tied to a success that not only was I proud of the success, but it was a success that I had reconciled with myself that I probably would never have again. So I wanted to keep it like an old photograph you know, up on the mantle, like keep the house as like, this is what I got from the success that I had when I was in my twenties. And then when I had the success with pleasure, joy, and happiness and all the validation of being who I am today and where I am today, telling a story that's my story today, it made me feel, and I never knew this would happen until it happened. It made me feel like I can let go of the house now because I have a new story to tell. That's really powerful it was powerful to me too, because I didn't, I didn't know that that could be the result of what was happening. I was just kind of in shock, been enjoying the, the validation and love that's come from pleasure, joy, and happiness.
0: Did you have, um, any like emotional closure with the house after you guys sold it?
1: That's a good question. And you would think that the answer would be yes, but I'm the type, Sissy and I talked about this, how different people mourn things differently. Mm -hmm. And I'm the type of, I'm like a real preparer. I'm the type of person that mourns things before they happen so that when they finally happen, I'm like, good riddance. I never look back. (laughs) And so.
0: Eddie, I'm in the exact same way. (laughs) I've just moved out of my apartment in New York, which I, you know, went all in on because I was like, I've never lived in New York this is my dream. I'm just going to put all this money and love into this one place. And then the pandemic hit and I rode my full lease, but it was probably the worst year to live in New York City in the history of New York City. Towards the end, I was just so sad of more like letting go of the ideology of like this dream that never happened. But again, like it was a pre-mourning because once The final week of packing everything happened. I was just so ready for it to be over.
1: I move extremely slow on decision making. I'm just super thorough and I really think things out before I do them and make sure that I've really covered all angles. Yeah. Um, So yeah, by the time I do make a decision, once I've made a decision, I feel like super rock solid and that i have really educated myself on what i'm about to do i've rehearsed it i'm very into you know my dad used to talk about psycho cybernetics when i was a kid and that's where people that think about what they're going to do and visualize it oftentimes do a better job in the task than people who physically rehearsed it so i'm very into that i really i really take the journey in my mind and experience everything i can possibly experience um with regard to that, um, before I finally do something, yeah. when I finally do the task. It's like, I feel like I've done it a million times because I've, I've been up every night thinking about it for the last few months.
0: Yeah. So you've fully processed your decision yeah. already. Yeah. That's a really great way to put it. Um, well, what is one place you're looking forward to traveling to after the pandemic is
1: over? I so miss, I mean, I call them family, but it's like family. It's this whole Friend group that I have in Copenhagen, and now Sissy and I both have them together because we've both been there together so many times. And I just miss them so much and love them so much, and it's just a shame that I haven't been able to see them. So that's probably the place I'm so excited to get out to and just spend some real time with um, my friends in Copenhagen.
0: Well, hopefully by this August we'll be able to, and I will see you there if so. Oh,
1: definitely, that'd be awesome. Wouldn't that be a fun hang? That would
0: be such a fun hang.
1: Yeah, I hope we get to do that.
0: Well, thank you, Eddie, for joining me today on The Art of Travel. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you this
1: year. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Olivia. Thanks, Eddie.
0: Thanks so much to Eddie for joining us today on the show. You can find Eddie's music on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you stream your music, or at Eddie Chacon on Instagram. Tune in every Tuesday for a new episode on the Art of Travel podcast. Subscribe to the Art of Travel podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you mainstream your favorite podcasts. The Art of Travel is created by Olivia Lopez, produced by Bon Weekender, edited by Jason Stewart, and music composed by Slow Shiver. We'll see you on Tuesday.